So if you'll turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 4, we've covered the first 18 verses, so we'll begin reading at verse 19. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and somebody will slip you a Bible. There's some on the front platform if you want to grab one there. Read God's Word with us. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 19. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Romans over the last few weeks, that Paul has been bringing the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of truth regarding justification and salvation. The theme is given to us in chapter 1. Paul writes that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And then in the next verses, he begins to tell us that as you and I, that, that mankind stands guilty before God. God will bring his wrath upon all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And as he indicts mankind, that we all stand guilty before God. In other words, none of us uh, can measure up to God's standard, which is perfection. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he kind of summed it all up as, as we saw in verse uh, 19 of chapter 3 of Romans that all the world may become guilty before God. But then what we saw is this wonderful transition from the judgment of God uh, to the justification of God. That you and I, that we are justified, and that means being declared righteous. We have salvation. It's a legal term. And we are justified not based upon the deeds of the law, but according to what the scripture tells us very clearly and what Romans has been telling us by faith in Jesus Christ, believing on him. And we know that this justification being declared righteous is given freely by his grace through faith. It is not based upon my works, it is not based upon my efforts or my religiousness or togetherness. It is based on having faith in what Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done for me, dying on the cross of Calvary, that I may have forgiveness of sin, that he rose from the grave and that he proved that he is the son of God and validated what he did on the cross. And so for those who would be reading Paul's letter, especially keep in mind that those of the Jewish background who were so familiar with the law, they valued the law, they boasted in the law, they may have thought reading all of this, particularly what was written in verses 21 through 31 of chapter three, they might think, well, if our justification is not based upon upon keeping of the law by faith alone, that's not right, Paul. Uh, no way. Uh, this is maybe just some new teaching that Paul has brought. They would think that that you've making it up, Paul. This is a revelation that's coming from you. And so what we saw last week is that Paul, writing in chapter 4, is sharing with his readers, and of course with us as well, that justification that is being declared righteous is not something that comes from me. I'm not making this up, and this is not new. This has been established since the Old Testament. And then Paul the Apostle does something very important in what he is declaring here, this whole doctrine of justice justification that he brings to you and to me is that he backs it up with scripture. He says it's been this way from the very beginning. And what Paul does is he takes us back and he brings out two individuals that were very important in Jewish history. First of all, there was Abraham. We looked at the life of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And you see, they would boast that they were descendants of Abraham. They were the covenant people. We are circumcised. And they thought that 
that automatically brought them salvation. And Paul goes back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and he would say, think about it. When was Abraham declared righteous with God? Was it when he was called in Genesis chapter 12 uh, from his father's house, from the Ur, the Chaldeans, to, to go to Canaan? Uh, was it in chapter 14 when he took a bunch of his servants, 318 of them, and went to rescue his nephew Lot? Or was he declared righteous in chapter 17 when the covenant of circumcision came? And you see, he takes us back to chapter 15 in verse 6 where we read that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so what we have seen in chapter 4, Paul has been building on that thought, hey, that Abraham was declared righteous by faith, not because of works. And also what we saw that Paul pointed to another very important uh, person in their history and that was David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. How David understood that a person is blessed to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And so as we continue in our study here, Paul, building on that, he is continuing to show us about faith and talk about faith. He's going to go back to Abraham and he's going to use Abraham as an illustration of faith as we read in verse 19 of Romans chapter 4. And not being weak in faith, Abraham, he, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform in verse 22. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So as Paul is once again looking at Abraham's life, he now points to the character of Abraham's faith. First of all, we notice that Abraham did not look to the circumstances, verse 19, but to God's promises. We know the story how God came to Abraham, told him that he would be a great nation, that is the father of a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And when Abraham received that, that word from the Lord, that promise from the Lord, he's 75 years old. Sarah is 65 years old. They didn't have any children at that time. Uh, they went all those years having no children. And, and when they were at the age where they were past the age of, of childbearing, Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. That's where we see that God's promise was fulfilled and Isaac was born. All those years that they tried to have a son, but God had promised them that they would. And we're told here that Abraham did not look at the frailties of his own body, but to the faithfulness of God's word that was given to him. And how we can be encouraged by that as we look at the characteristic of Abraham's faith is that there are times in our lives and circumstances that we face you know, we see that there's a deadness in that circumstance, in that situation. And we begin to think, how can your promise, your word be true, Lord? God is the one that can bring life back into that circumstance, that situation. And his word will be true and he will be faithful in what he has declared. It's the children of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, that were brought out of the wilderness uh, or brought out of Egypt into the wilderness. They would come to the mountain of God and, and there they received the law and they were told to construct the tabernacle and the 
priests were and the Levites were all organized and they were ready as a nation. And so in the second year of the Exodus, they would go up to the border of the promised land. And the Lord had promised them over and over again that I'm going to give you this land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I'll drive out the inhabitants, go in and take the land. Well, what they did in Numbers chapter 13 is they sent spies into the land, 12 of them. They were there for 40 days. They come back and they're carrying all this fruit and, and it tells of two of them that had poles that they had on their shoulders, bearing on their shoulders. They had these big clusters of grapes and they came back and they said, it is a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at all this fruit. And the people were amazed and they said, yes, that's great. But then the spies, 10 of them said, that there's a problem. There are giants in the land. And there's fortified cities. And we're but grasshoppers in their sight. And when the people heard that, they began to murmur. They began to complain. They said, Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? We can't go into the promised land. Our children will die there. And instead of keeping their eyes on the God of Israel, they began to focus on the enemies of Israel. They knew that in their own strength that they were dead. But God had said, I'll give you the land of milk and honey. And I'll defeat those giants. And I'll bring down those walls. And take your eyes off of your limitations and put them on me, the one who is limitless. Go in faith and take the land. But they wouldn't do that. So they ended up 40 years wandering out in the wilderness in that hot, barren desert. And I just want to say this. Did I think that a lot of Christians spend a lot of time in their lives in the wilderness spiritually because they don't believe God's word? They may not know God's word. They don't believe God's promises that are given to them. And so here he didn't waver at the promise that was given, as we see the characteristic of Abraham's faith. But secondly, we read, we see that Abraham did not waver uh, at the promise of God. His faith did not waver. It was a challenge for Abraham. So he knew the promise of God. He knew that the promise was given to him. And so he didn't look at the circumstances, and then we are told he didn't waver at the promise. We know that Abraham, is, he was called Abram, uh, which means exalted father. Uh, I wonder when he introduced himself, hi, I'm Abram, during those, those times that, that his name was before God changed it to Abraham. I'm exalted father. Well, how many children do you have? I don't have any. The people said, What? You know, if they made fun of him or taunted him. His name, as you know, was changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And when Isaac was born, Abraham and Sarah, of course, they, they worshiped the Lord. They, they were so full of joy at the faithfulness of the Lord. But I'm sure they also breathed a huge sigh of relief. Thank you, Lord. Abraham didn't waver. He didn't say, call me father wannabe all those years. He believed God's promise to him that he would be the father of many nations and that he knew that God would be true to his word. So we know that he didn't look to the circumstances. You know, it seemed like it was impossible that this is a dead circumstance or situation where you can't work. He did not waver at the promise of God. And thirdly, the characteristic of Abraham's faith is he gave glory to God. I believe a real key to faith is to give glory to God. 
Abraham's faith was, was strengthened as he gave glory to God. And I find that as I do the same thing, when I remember how awesome God is and how powerful, that, how big my God is, then doubt and fear and murmuring begin to leave. You see, I can struggle. I, I, I can begin to doubt. I wonder. But when I begin to read my Bible, when, when I am praying, when I am looking to the Lord, when I'm in fellowship with other believers and, and being encouraged in the word, they're praying for me. My faith grows. My faith is fed. And that's why I believe that being in fellowship is so important for us as Christians because we can encourage one another. We can remind each other the promises of God. We can give glory to God. We can, we can remind each other that God is faithful. You know, I was hearing uh, statistics in a report this week that, and I mentioned it on Wednesday, that over 100 churches a week closed down in the United States. And I think over 100? That's thousands every year that are closing down. And that the church, it's a, it's a large inclusion of, of, you know, a lot of churches and denominations, but how the, the attendance in church in America today is rapidly declining. There is benefit, there is blessing in having fellowship with other brothers and sisters. There's strength in that as we come in and we are encouraged, reminded of God's promises that are given to us. And so we are to be ones that give glory to God. You know, as we think about this in the Gospels, uh, we know that uh, it was Jesus in Luke chapter 9. It's also recorded in the synoptic gospels of Mark and Matthew. He's up in the Galilee region. He's at the height of his popularity. Multitudes, great multitudes is what the gospels say were pressing in on Jesus. And all of a sudden, this individual named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus. And he says, please, please, Jesus, come to my house. I have a 12-year-old daughter that's near death. It took a lot of courage for Jairus to come to Jesus at that time because the religious leaders had already mounted up their opposition against Jesus. And Jairus says, I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to ask for help. And Jesus would begin to make his way to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. And as he's making his way, I just picture Jairus. He's out there in front of the crowd. They're all pressing in on Jesus. It's going slow. And he's, he's pushing people away. And he's saying, get out of the way. We're trying to get through. I need to get to my house. My daughter's near death. And all of a sudden, the procession stops in those chapters that you read. And there was a woman there with the issue of blood for 12 years. And she reached out and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And as you read that, it says, Jesus stopped. And he said, who touched me? And the disciples are going, who, what do you mean who touched you? People are all around you touching you. He said, no, I perceive power went out. Somebody touched me. Somebody in need touched me. And he stopped and he ministered to that woman who needed healing, was healed. Who needed to hear the compassionate words of Jesus say to her daughter, and I'm sure Jairus, that, that he's there going, why are you stopping and ministering to her? I have needs. You need to hurry up, Lord. You need to come to my house now. We can't wait any longer. And oftentimes, that we can feel that way. Lord, you're ministering to everybody else. 
Lord, don't you care about me? Why don't you hurry up? And as they make their way to Jairus' house, the story continues, picks up with Jairus. Somebody comes to him and says, don't bother to teach her anymore. Your daughter's dead. And I'm sure that his heart sank in a way that we can't fully understand. And he's probably thinking, why? Lord, why didn't you hurry? Wasn't I important? And Jesus turned to Jairus and said, don't be afraid, only believe. And maybe there's a circumstance or a situation going on in your life where you're thinking, Lord, hurry up. It seems so helpless. Lord, this situation's about ready to die. The Lord says to you, don't be afraid, only believe. And then Jesus, when he got to the house, the mourners were there and they were mourning and, and, and Jesus said, the girl's not dead, it's only sleeping. And it tells us that they began to laugh at Jesus. They scorned him, they mocked him. And you know how Jesus would go into the house and there's that lifeless girl <laughs> laying there and he would say to her, tell I thy kumai. Arise, little girl, and she arose and she was brought back to life. You see, that story tells me something, and that is whenever the Lord gives his promise to you, his word is given. There are going to be those that are around us that will laugh and ridicule and scorn. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe what the Bible says? Is that promise really for you? How is that going to work out practically in that dead situation that you face? And what you and I are to do at that point is you move out those mockers, those who scorn, and you trust God and you give glory to God and you praise God. And Abraham was one that worshiped God. He was a worshiper. And as you do that, the mockers are going to leave. Joshua chapter 6, the children of Israel come up against the fortified city of Jericho. Double walls, 30 feet high is what archaeologists believe was the, the walls of Jericho. That's their first battle after finally, finally, 40 years of being in the wilderness. They're there at Gilgal. And the Lord comes and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the city for six days once, blow the ram's horn, and, and, and then you go back to camp. And as they did that, the people that were on the walls of Jericho, I'm sure initially they were a little nervous. Uh-oh, they've come into the promised land. But they would walk around the city, around the outside of the walls. They would blow the horns, and then they would go back to camp. Day two, they did that. Day three, they did that. Probably after four, you know, day four, five, and six, the people up in the wall are saying, man, they've been out in the wilderness and under the sun way too long because we have no idea what they're doing. They, they don't know what they're doing. Probably laughing, mocking, you know. Hey, you guys down there. But you see, when they blew those horns, it wasn't for war, but I believe it was for worship and expression of belief. You see, there is victory when we worship him, when we believe his word, when we give glory and praise and, and to him. And the walls that come up against us begin to tumble down. So as we look at the characteristic of, of Abraham, he didn't look to the circumstances, didn't waver his faith. He, he gave glory to God. And then fourthly, you can write in your margins that one of the characteristics of faith that we see in his life is that God was, listen, able to perform what he had promised, verse 21. I have that underlined in my Bible. You see, oftentimes what we do is we try to figure out how God is going to work. 
How is it that you're going to perform this, Lord? And Abraham was fully persuaded that God would perform what he had promised to him. So go back to Joshua chapter 6. I'm sure that as they're trying to figure out how is it that we're going to penetrate these walls of Jericho, maybe fire and brimstone will come down. Maybe there will be a mighty earthquake to cause the walls to tumble. Joshua comes in to his general and he says that, hey, guys, I know what it is that we're supposed to do. God told me. He gave me a plan. Okay, great. Walk around the city six days once, blow the horn, you know, and then go back to camp, okay? Seventh day, walk around seven times, and then when we're done, we'll blow the horns, and we'll give a great shout, and the walls will come down. Now, Joshua and the generals and the people could have said, that's not going to work. How's that going to work out? What kind of plan is that? But they did it in faith. And for us to understand that when God gives a promise in his word, know that God is able to perform that word. That he is faithful to bring that promise to pass. And so Paul here commending Abraham's faith. We see the characteristics of Abraham's faith. And you might be listening to this and you might be someone here and you're thinking, well, that's great to see the characteristic of Abraham's faith. He didn't look to the hopeless circumstance. His faith didn't waver. He gave glory to God. He believed that God was able to perform what he promised. I don't have faith like Abraham did. Because I falter and I waver Consistently, I doubt continually. And I want you to know that Paul encourages us when we have that kind of thought and mindset. That as we read in verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And in verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. If you believe, listen, that Jesus came to this world, God incarnate, he died for your sins, he was raised from the dead, then your faith is every bit as credible as Abraham's. And we are told here, righteousness and justification shall be imputed unto you as it was with Abraham. You remember that Paul in the book of Acts on that second missionary journey. He's in the city of Athens, the most sophisticated city in all of the world. He's talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill and he's telling them about the unknown God, about the true and the living God who created the heavens and the earth. And he talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what was the reaction of those philosophers is that most of them mocked Paul. Some said, we'll hear you later on this matter. And you see, the world does not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose again. But you do. You haven't seen Jesus physically. You haven't heard his voice audibly. You haven't seen him with your own eyes. But somehow you believe. You have faith like Abraham did. You have faith even though the world mocks us and ridicules us, makes fun of us. The world does not understand what you do by faith. We believe. We who believe in our hearts that Jesus died for our offenses and then three days later rose from the grave and that he's alive. 
And as you come in faith, you're declared righteous and justified as you have faith and to believe that he died for your sins and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you put your faith in the risen Lord, then you can believe God's promises that are for you. Especially in those times where you face the giants or the Jerichos of your life. Know that he can perform what he promises, even if that situation seems impossible, seems too difficult, seems dead. You have exercised faith in believing in Jesus and what he has done, so exercise that faith which causes you to embrace the resurrection, to believe that God's promises are true for you. As it was Jesus that said in John chapter 8, that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. And we are glad too, aren't we? Rejoicing in the risen Lord, raised for our justification. And now as we go into chapter 5, he writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, Paul writes, as we move into chapter 5, in light of what I've declared to you concerning justification, what we've learned in, in the previous chapter, that justification is a gift. It cannot be earned by works. That circumcision has no relationship to justification. That justification is not based upon the law. It is faith, not works, that brought Abraham justification. Therefore... So now that Paul has been very clearly from the scripture showing us that the way of salvation to be justified by grace through faith, now we learn the practical benefits of justification is this. That number one, what we read, we have peace with God. Second of all, we have access to God. And then thirdly, we rejoice in God. The benefits of being justified, first of all, we have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God, but we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, I remember, you know, back in, in 1972, and there wasn't a whole lot of news like there is today. There's cable news networks and, you know, all kinds of them. There's news all around us, and, and we pull it up all the time. Well, you usually had an evening news report, and that was it back in the early 70s. And, and I remember, I, I didn't watch news, but I remember my dad had the TV on watching some news. And I'll never forget this. It just really struck me. But in 1972, the last imperial... Japanese soldier was found on a South Sea island. In other words, he still thought the war was going on, World War II. He did not hear that the war was over and that there was now peace between the United States and Japan. And he lived in all those years in isolation, still at war, still hiding in his fortifications that he built to hold off the enemy. And you look at that and I remember thinking all those years, 27 years after World War II what a shame he could have been at home enjoying his family enjoying the peacetime post-war economic boom but for 27 years after the war he was still trying to stay alive and didn't know that there had been a peace treaty signed 
And unfortunately, there are Christians that feel like they're still at war with God, at enmity against God. That God is always angry at me. And he's out to get me. Because I fail, because I realize I'm not perhaps what I could be and should be. I got up late today and I didn't pray. I didn't read my Bible. I, I blew it with the kids. I got angry with a coworker. I struggle with the thoughts that I have. And God must think that I'm the enemy. So I'm going to hide from him. And we don't get it, Christian. The war is over. It's over. You have peace with God. When you come to Jesus Christ in faith, we now have peace with God. And the sin that separated me from God is now forgiven. And I'm reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And having peace with God means that secondly, that I have access to God. It means that I can come and talk to him freely and fellowship with him continually. And if I forget to pray or go to him, he welcomes me to come. If I sin or I blow it, I get angry, whatever, I still have access to him. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, as parents, I think we understand this concept when we think about those of us who have kids. They have access to us, don't they? Because they have relationship. And my kids, they understood that. They still understand that. You know, for years in my office upstairs, they knew that they can come into my office. If I was meeting with somebody, they, they didn't come in, but they knew they could come in any time. And usually what they did is they made a beeline right for my desk. And in one of the drawers, I had a little piece of candy there and stuff. And they'd raid my drawer. And they had access to it. Matter of fact, I think Barbara just raided it this week um, in my office. But they have that access. They knew, even though maybe they got in trouble for today, that they could come to dad. They realized that even today, anytime. And we have access with our Heavenly Father because we have the spirit of adoption where we cry out. Paul's going to later write in this book, and also he writes it in Galatians, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba literally means Papa. Lord, I blew it. Or, Lord, help me. Or, Lord, I didn't spend time with you this morning, but I choose to do it now. And we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand. I like that Paul uses that word stand. That word stand gives the idea of standing in confidence and boldness, not in our own confidence, but in confidence in what Jesus Christ has done. And you recall, if you were with us in our study of Hebrews, that we got done this summer that in Hebrews chapter 10 that you and I as believers that we can come boldly with confidence into the holy of holies that speaks of the presence of God not in our own confidence but because of the blood of Jesus Christ now to the Hebrew mind that really meant something can you imagine Aaron the high priest of the Old Testament hearing that reading this what Paul is writing that you have peace with God and you have access to God and you can stand in his presence. 
And Aaron would be saying, wow, are you serious? Because you see, only the high priest was allowed to go into the presence of God behind the veil for a short time, one day out of the year, to make atonement for the sins of the nation after he did elaborate washings and cleansings. And Aaron's saying that your sin is now taken away, you are forgiven, and that you can come into the Holy of Holies on any day that you want, and you can stay as long as you want, and you can do it as many times as you want. Christians, can we understand why this is called the gospel good news and glad tidings proclaimed? You are counted righteous before God, justified by God because of your faith, the same faith that Abraham had. Because you believe that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. He rose from the dead, and now you have peace with God. You have access to God. You can stand before the Father, and you can enjoy him. And then thirdly, quickly, not only peace with God and access with God, but verse 2 goes on to tell us because uh, the first two things, we rejoice in God. We rejoice, don't we? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Because we have peace with God, access through Jesus Christ, we have hope. Now, hope, when you read that word hope in the scriptures, it doesn't mean I hope this works out. I hope I am forgiven. I hope I go to heaven when, you know, I pass away. No, hope in the scripture means certainty. It is coming expectation. We have the hope of heaven, the hope of sharing in his glory. Now, rejoicing means triumphant. Rejoicing with confidence. So we rejoice and boast in him, what he has done. And it has the idea of keep on rejoicing in the hope that we're going to share in Christ's riches, his inheritance, not because of me, but in spite of me. Because we've already seen that Paul made it clear in the previous chapter that we fall short of the glory of God. And it's only because that we are justified freely by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's because of his love and his mercy and what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. It is not us boasting because he said boasting's excluded in heaven. It isn't look what I did to earn heaven. It isn't me blowing my own trumpet. It is rejoicing in my heart for what God has done and what he's doing presently. And he gets the glory. To understand that it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We have no reason to glory in ourselves. And we need to be reminded of that. Remember that Jesus would say that let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify yourself? No. But glorify your father which is in heaven. And the tendency and the temptation for any of us can be. I want to be in the spotlight, to be glorified, to show people how wonderful and talented and gifted and religious I am when it is, it is you, Lord. Without you, I have no hope that causes us to rejoice in the cross of Calvary. And in just a minute, we're going to take of communion. And in taking of communion, we're remembering what Jesus has done for us in this, this new covenant based on grace and his love and Jesus allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a time for us to worship and be thankful. It is a time for us to remember that Jesus did it all 
on the cross of Calvary. He proved that he's the son of God by rising from the grave. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, he is your salvation. There is none other. And he came and he died for you on that cross because he loves you, to give you a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope. To be forgiven, to have a relationship with the Father, and the hope of heaven. So, Father, we thank you for these words to remind us that we got so much to be thankful for. The work that Jesus has done for us. That he went to the cross to die for our sins. The Son of God who lived a perfect life. To die for us who haven't lived a perfect life. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We haven't measured up to the standard of the law. It only the law has declared us all guilty. But we thank you for Jesus' love proven to us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross, the empty tomb. Oh Lord, we thank you for great things you have done. And I pray if there's anybody here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is calling you right now to come to him, to believe in him, He went to the cross to die for you. He knew that you would be here in this place on the first Sunday of December 2018. And he says, I love you and I want to forgive you. I want to save you, make you a a new creation, give you a new heart to forgive you, to bring you into relationship with the Father. And it is as you respond to the invitation that he has to come and believe in him. To believe in the gospel of Christ. To make it your own. To realize that I haven't lived a perfect life. I've sinned and I need to turn to Jesus who is my salvation. There is none other. And ask for forgiveness. Believe that he rose from the grave and he's alive. And ask him to come into your life as your personal Lord and Savior. You can do that right where you're sitting. If it means anything to anyone here this morning that you pray in your heart right now, Jesus, I come to you. I am a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me. I believe that you went to the cross and died for my sins and you rose again in your life. And I thank you for your love for me, your provision for me. And I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to fellowship with you and enjoy you all the days of my life. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for bringing me here to hear this message. And it is now my gospel. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. And as we're going to take a communion, and then when we close the service, there's going to be a prayer team up front. Will you come up and tell them of the decision that you made? But right now, as the communion elements are handed out, may we just hold on to them, continue to just... Just be thankful and continue to worship as as we'll partake of communion together.
Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We thank you for Jesus' first coming, his first advent, coming as the babe of Bethlehem for a purpose, to come and die for the sins of mankind, that we might be forgiven, might be reconciled to God through your death and resurrection. So Lord, we thank you. We look forward to the second advent when he will come again and we will have dinner together. So Lord, I pray that this Christmas season as we're with family and friends and as we're with coworkers, neighbors and others, that we proclaim that the light of the world has come. And there's a purpose why he was born as the babe of Bethlehem and that was to bring salvation, to go to the cross, to bring forgiveness. He's alive, he rose from the grave. So Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive to your leading as we share with others, the glad tidings, the good news. And Lord, I pray that we would be ones to keep you the priority of our Christmas season. Take everyone home safely here today. May we rejoice in you, great things you have done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.